Hey, it's Andrew, and I wanted to thank you for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Did you know that you can subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or wherever you get your podcasts to have new episodes delivered to your feed twice a week on Wednesday and Friday? All you have to do is pick up your phone, navigate to your podcast app, and search for Door County or Door County Pulse podcast and click subscribe. If you're a longtime listener or if this is your first episode, we hope you enjoy the Door County Pulse podcast. And welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast, where each week we talk with the writers and editors of the Peninsula Pulse about the stories you can find in this week's issue. I'm Andrew Clyden, and this week I'm joined by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing really great. This is going to be our uh, final food interview for the month of February. We spent all February interviewing uh, various different people involved in the food scene in Door County, and this week we have Matt Chambas and... Jamie Mead. Uh, they're part of Door County Underground. That's been their uh, new project that they started spearheading. I think they're on year two now. So we're going to get into an interview with them coming up here after the break. But before we get into it, we've got a little bit of news to wrap up. Not a ton this week, so we'll, we'll kind of fly through it and then we'll get into our interview. Uh, first up, we talked a little bit about Josh Kropensky last week, the, the Gibraltar women's basketball team, but there's a, a new article on him this week. Yeah, Lauren Bremer, uh, a teacher at Gibraltar School and uh, a contributor to the Peninsula Pulse and Door County Living Magazine, wrote a really good feature on Josh Kropinski, who has created a, a, a new culture, I think, over the over the years at Gibraltar in the women's program. And um, it kind of coincides really nicely right now with the start of regional tournament play for the on the girls' side. And Gibraltar earned their first ever number one seed in their regional just had a lot of success, a lot of big achievements this year with some of those players, both past and present. So Peyton Pluff scored her 1,000th point earlier this season and broke Gibraltar's career scoring record uh, just uh, last week. And the woman who used to own that scoring record, McKenna Ash, who also played for Coach Kropinski, just recently scored her 1,000th point for St. Olaf College in her senior season that just wrapped up. So, And, you know, like Josh has, he's been a coach of the girls' side for nine years been coaching on one side or another at Gibraltar school for almost 20. He's coached uh, girls basketball. He's coached boys basketball at nearly every, every level. He's done a great job building a youth program. And he's just like a guy who has this culture. He's, his players love him. Like, Top to bottom. So yeah. So we talked a little bit last week about I think it was last week about the girls basketball, uh, how yeah. well they're doing, and and this is just another element of that. We we had we had touched on how a good coach will come in and will from the ground up really reevaluate what's working and what's not, and try to create something special. And it, it seems like Josh has done that. Yeah, definitely for sure. And he's uh, I, I think I think I talked about it last week. I came into the coaching ranks with him, and I know how hard it is. For anyone to stick with that for that long, basketball is a long season. It takes like the entire winter, so you can't get out of town. So when it's snowing and everyone else is going to Florida, you are locked down and because you have to have practice like five to six days a week. And not everyone can do that, and he just keeps coming back. He coached for me for free as an assistant coach and made it to, I think, every single practice, went out and scouted road games and stuff for the one of the years I was coaching varsity at Gibraltar. Guy just loves being in the gym, loves working with kids, and the kids love him. It's uh, it's really cool. Conversely, down in Southern Door, something uh, I should mention is Kyle Doust, who has been uh, having a stellar career for Southern Door High School on the boys' side, just uh, set the single-game scoring record for Door County. Uh, high school hoops. He scored 51 points Monday night in a win against Algoma. He scored 25 the following night against Sevastopol. And that puts him third all time in Door County history in scoring. And he's got a outside shot of passing Nathan Vogel and his head coach, Derek Hockey, and moving into first place all time um, in the next couple games. And Southern Door has, it remains undefeated in conference play in the Packer land for the second straight year. So uh, Southern Door also having a ton of success. Really great time to watch high school basketball this year. I'm yeah. Tournament time is right here. It's a great uh, tournament time is when everyone's hopes gets renewed. You know, like I was on a lot of bad teams at, at Gibraltar over the years and some good teams. But like once you get through conference play, even if you're Owen 14 in conference, you still have that hope of, all right, now we go to regional play where we get to play against schools our size and maybe we can make a little run. And honestly, even 
like winning one or two games at a small school, even if you had an awful season, that really does get the excitement going. So it's a ton of fun this time of year. So next up, we have Supreme Court elections coming up, and we have uh, an article about Supreme Court candidate Neubauer. Is that? Yeah, uh, that is the one. Lisa Neubauer was at the Crest Pavilion in Egg Harbor for an appearance last week. Our own Jim Lundstrom was there. Lisa Neubauer is running as a Democrat for Supreme Court against uh, Mike Hagedorn. And the interesting thing that that came away from that uh, appearance in Egg Harbor was just she talked a lot and railed a lot on the idea of like judicial elections as partisan affairs. It is odd that we elect judges and we elect sheriffs and that they run as Democrats and Republicans, you know, because so many of of like the ways you might vote or enforce the law really are tied to those uh, to those parties and, and where you and your party affiliation. So it's just kind of a it's one of those things she fought, was uh, railing against that and also the amount of money that's involved in judicial elections like that nowadays where. So this is the state Supreme Court. And she was talking about there might be millions spent on one side or the other in some of these Supreme Court races. And it's just kind of getting out of hand to do that in, uh, in, in elections such as that. What does the money go to? Because when you think of like uh, larger scale elections, like presidential elections, of course, that money comes from employing people to to work on the campaign, but also travel for tons of different people going to different campaign stops. And then you have uh, media and marketing and all that stuff. Is it similar on a smaller scale like this or... Yeah, a lot of times on statewide elections, what you see is what starts to add up is that stuff that you see in your your mailboxes. Um, All those flyers that come and, you know, some days last fall, you probably saw this, but one day you'd go to your mailbox and there'd be eight different candidate flyers on the same day that all just show up. So it's the printing and mailing of all those. It's all the social media ads now that pop up in your feed. It's email campaigns and buying lists and sometimes like so a state Supreme Court race, there's going to be a lot of um, TV ads involved in that. Maybe not as much like, say, the local assembly races. Those aren't going to have as big of a, of a, a TV buy, but the, the Senate races have started to have that. Like Caleb Frostman last fall and, and Andre Jacques were spending a lot on TV ads. So, yeah, it goes all over. Obviously, it's not on the scale as the national elections, but man, that has changed a lot in the last 10 years since I've been I mean, 15 years that I've been covering local politics 15 years ago. It's like basically you announced you were running. You maybe sent some letters to the editor. Maybe you took out a small ad in the paper a couple of times and you went door to door and walked around in parades. Like now it's, those are real campaigns and, and it's good and bad, but I think a lot of that money just comes from outside the area from national organizations trying to make a dent. You know, like last year when Rebecca Dallet won, there was a big nationwide push from, you know, Democrats around the country, Democratic fundraisers, Democratic organizations to try and get her elected because they saw that as a bellwether election, even though it was a state Supreme Court election that's normally kind of ignored. They saw that as a way to kind of like change the tide nationally. So you're seeing that those big money interests come in on what used to be very localized, very small scale, I guess, elections. And that's not just on the Democratic side. You, you see it on the Republican side, too. The, the Koch brothers are a um, very conservative pair of brothers who have spent a lot of money in Wisconsin um, over the last 10 years um, pushing for conservative policies and conservative candidates. There's just like a ton of money t- coming into, the, into Wisconsin from people who have no ties here at all. Do you think that with the internet, campaigns are getting more expensive or less expensive? And I I have to think about my perspective of how I investigate candidates and stuff. It's usually from sources that aren't really delivered to me by the candidacy. I mean, I, I usually will check out, you know, articles like what the Pulse puts out of, like, these are the talking points or these are the platforms, um, or I'll go on their website and read what their, what their base is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I don't really see myself ever being impacted by in-person meetings or rallies or physical media in my mailbox or television commercials. I don't have TV. So the only ads that I would see would be like a YouTube ad, but I pay for ad free service. So it's like, I'm not being really impacted by the stuff that the marketing dollars go into. Do you think that that's having an effect as, as voters get older or, or not yeah. get older, but as, as younger vo- voters are coming into the fray, people like me who are, are more based in the internet and aren't as susceptible to targeted ads. Well, people are definitely spending more than ever before, but I totally agree with you. I'm in, in the same boat. I don't have 
cable television, the only time I watch anything that would be traditional cable would be to watch NFL and NBA games. And when you watch an NFL game in the fall nowadays in an election cycle, I was like, wow, do people actually watch this all the time? Because these ads are just like nonstop and they're just disgusting. They're just terrible. And especially for someone like me who who has talked to a lot of these individuals and know a lot of the actual policies that they support. You're like, well, that's most of this is a load of crap. And most and the people watching this, a lot of them are buying this. You see that if, if you are getting a lot of your news from nightly television news or in, in a lot of cases, radio, too, um, you were just getting fed a lot of crap in 30 second doses. Well, and that that's not even to say that the majority of the propaganda that my generation is getting is things like uh, Russian bots and people who are campaigning as regular people on Internet forums or on yeah. websites like Reddit or Facebook or Twitter. That's where I think a lot of our advertisement is coming from. Yeah. And it's, it's disguised. And they're, and they're spending a lot on it. Like, right. So when you, you when you ask if they're if it's cheaper to advertise, it, it kind of can be because you can target it and stuff. But there's they're spending a ton on it. I mean, I guess there is one example in, in Florida where Rick Scott, I believe was running against, uh, Andrew Gillum for the governorship last fall. And Andrew Gillum spent a fraction of his opponents just by he, him targeting very specific targeting to using mostly social media and internet based ads versus I think Rick Scott was spending a ton more money on television and nightly TV news ads, which is very good if you're like older people still vote more. So if you think you're going to, you're going to win by going after older voters, the type of people who watch the nightly local news, like it's worth spending it there in a large chunk, but that's with each passing year, those people dwindle. So that's, where's that tipping point where that style of, of political campaigning is just no longer effective and not worth the money. There are some who would say it already isn't, but there's something that doesn't get talked about a lot because we're, we're fortunate at the pulse. We don't get a lot of income from political ad spending, so we don't have anything to protect there. But if you think about CNN, MSNBC, your local television stations, they make a ton of money off political spending. So there's very little incentive for them to do the investigative work and to tell the stories about how bad that is for our society or to do stories about how bad it is that they've kind of opened the doors wide open for anybody to spend as much as they want unaccounted for in many ways on political campaigns to influence our elections. Um, you don't see those reports, but they, it, it is one of the biggest issues going on in the country today, but there's no incentive for big media companies to tell those stories because it cuts into their pocketbook. Right. I think in the next five years, you're going to see a shift from television commercials to memes and viral videos. I think that's how candidates are going to get their platforms across. I mean, it largely is now, right? How do people announce it? Bernie Sanders just announced, uh, Klobuchar announced, uh, when, uh, Elizabeth Warren announced they're doing it with short Instagram and Twitter videos, all trying to be creative. One is trying to do like slapdash, like, Hey, it's just me in my house. Look, I'm cool. I'm having a beer. I'm hip. I'm with it. And then the next one is a very well polished. Obviously, they're like now decided to run. It's like you started working on this video 18 months ago. Like we make videos. We know how much work goes into some of these and all the polish and stuff. It's like this has been done just been waiting for this rollout and you've spent a ton of money on it. You know, it's funny. It's funny that you took that in a real direction because I was more referencing the rent is too high guy or (laughs) some of the other candidates who have gotten their publicity largely from having a viral video come out. Uh, But then my next step from viral videos would be uh, candidates are going to sell Fortnite skins and you're going to be able to buy your candidate, your favorite candidates like dance move in Fortnite. That'll be the next step. Well, you lost me at Fortnite. Although my nieces and nephews all, have played a ton of that game and that's the only reason I know what it is at all. Gosh, I sound like such an old guy. It, it, it's okay. I I barely know what Fortnite is. I know that the, all of the middle schoolers do the dances. I know that. But <laughs> beyond that, I am i don't know as much as, as... You know, I'm glad that I don't know as much as I could. Let's, let's <laughs> put it there. Anything else for us to talk about this week? Yeah, actually, there was a, uh, a study. The, the results of the study on Potawatomi Tower came out and it looks like what we've known for a while that it's probably going to have to come down. Yeah. So there it's very similar to what happened with Eagle Tower. They the same same people came up, did the same evaluations, took the wood samples of the wood back to their lab, came back with pretty much the same conclusions as Eagle Tower saying this is unstable and 
should come down. Uh, there is a kind of competing study going on that Sturdivant Historical Society have brought in their own wood experts to evaluate the tower and with the cooperation of the DNR. And they took samples in early January and they will be coming back with their report in a couple of weeks. And the DNR says that they will be working. They'll make their decision based on the results of both studies and then come back with the recommendation. My guess is they're going to recommend tearing it down because the DNR tends to go with the easiest way out rather than fight for it. And they're saying anything that happens, repair or um, rebuild, if it happens, they're already saying has to accommodate Americans with Disabilities Act, just like Eagle Tower. Right. So Now, I thought that the results of this study had come out a while ago. I was, al- I was always under the assumption after Eagle Tower came out that Pottawatomie Tower was in a similar boat. Did we, did we know about this beforehand? They, they said that, uh, that so they closed Eagle Tower last spring, if I'm remembering that correctly, and they said it would likely come down, but they always have to do the evaluation and get the official, like, all right, now this is the, your proof that it has to come down. They closed Pottawatomie Tower. Pottawatomie, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, th- again, I was operating under that assumption, but interesting to see that the study is finally out. Yeah. Um, we we may have mentioned this before, or at least it's something that I've been interested in. Do you think that Pottawatomie Tower will receive the same uh, overwhelming support that Eagle Tower did? My hunch would be n- no, only because, you know, P- Peninsula State Park just has a larger visitor base year after year. That's generations of people who have a tie to Eagle Tower. More people go up Eagle Tower, I believe. And so, and it's kind of, you know, it's just featured in more art and more images and more photos and all those pictures from Ephraim and kind of thing. So they're just playing more people to support it. And I, we did see a lot more uproar when they said Eagle Tower was coming down than we have with Pottawatomie, although there is definitely a, a support group for saving Pottawatomie Tower. Well, my thought would be, number one, is it going to be difficult to have lightning strike twice? You know what I mean? We we already had these campaigns come out to help Eagle Tower. Eagle Tower is being rebuilt. I, is it possible that we get the same thing to happen so shortly after Eagle Towers? But then on the other side of that, my wonder is, if is, is Eagle Tower construction already underway? Is that scheduled to open next summer? It is supposed to be completed by the end of the summer. I don't, I don't think anything is underway. I think they have cleared some of the trees, if I'm correct, on that. Unless that clearing that I saw last fall was for like trails alone, but I do believe they've cleared some of the trees. So then, my thought would be if if Potawatomi takes a while to to get its you know to find its conclusion, and Eagle Tower opens and it's successful and people love the new redesign and it becomes a really great thing, then does it become easier for Potawatomi Tower to follow in its footsteps, seeing what happened? To Eagle Tower. Yeah, that's possible. The The one thing that they have working against them would be, you know, Eagle Tower is going to cost $2.1 million if it all comes in at what they're estimating. And they raised $750,000. And then the state matched seven fifty. dollars And I think they still need to raise the difference there between the, the 1.5 and the 2.1. If So you think about that, even with all the hubbub created about Eagle Tower, that was... They, they only raised about a third of what it will cost to rebuild the new ADA-compliant tower. So that means that that hill to climb for Pottawatomie is even higher, just assuming that they don't have as many like knee-jerk supporters. And then also assuming that maybe if the state already kicked in 750 for Eagle Tower with the funding cuts that they've made over the years to the state parks, is it likely that they're going to find 750 to kick into Pottawatomie Tower, two parks in the same county? You know, because they try to spend that money around the county. So, uh, you know, if they see if other parts of the state see all this, these kind of capital improvement dollars go to Door County, that maybe won't look as good. But maybe it's a good test for Joel Kitchens to go out and and grab that money. But it also might be like, well, how are you going to say that Eagle Tower deserves it, but not Pottawatomie? Right. So there's all these kind of. Well, and then there's a question, too. I mean, what if it was the opposite? What if Pottawatomie Tower went down first and Eagle Tower was 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 closed, but then the results had come out for Eagle yeah. Tower. Would things be different? Would we have seen the same kind of support for Pottawatomie Tower? Would Pottawatomie Tower's rebuilding be underway? Maybe you lose them both and you build a new tower in Egg Harbor. Or my thought is build really big towers, connect them. Then you got you have a walking zip line. Yeah, you have a zip, zip line from Sturgeon Bay to whichever that way, one has better. That elevation. way you could get around all that oh just terrible traffic of the summertime. Right. <laughs> 
Well, I think that that's going to do it for us this week for news. We're going to take a break, Miles, and then when we get back, I'm going to talk with Aaliyah Kidd and Matt Chamas and Jamie Mead about Door County Underground. So. Yeah, it should be really exciting. That's kind of like the first... Uh big pop-up dinner chefs that have started in Door County, right? So. Right. They're doing they're doing really interesting stuff, and I'm looking forward to sitting down with them and, and chatting about food. Awesome. So I hope you all have enjoyed our February food focus for the Door County Pulse podcast, um, and enjoy our interview. They call themselves the Stradivarius builders of Sturgeon Bay because the guys at Palmer Johnson were artists in wood and metalwork, anything you imagine. They did it so beautifully well. The first fishermen came down the lake from Mackinac Island, worked their way along the north shore of Lake Michigan, and they came because of the whitefish. The whitefish were abundant. In 1945, 2,000 German prisoners of war came to Door County and picked cherries for just one harvest season. Peninsula Filmworks is dedicated to telling the stories of Door County, past, present, and future. To learn more about the history of shipbuilding in Sturgeon Bay, to see how the cherry became a Door County icon, or to watch the peninsula's last remaining fishermen brave the waters to haul in thousands of pounds of whitefish daily, and the many other incredible stories produced with the Door County Visitor Bureau, visit doorcounty.com slash ourdoorcounty. Okay, we are back, and I'm joined by Aaliyah Kidd, multimedia editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Aaliyah? Going good. Good. Uh, for our final food interview this month, we brought in Matt Chambas and Jamie Mead. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Good. So you guys are, are working through Door County Underground right now, right? Uh, and we'll get into that first, but I kind of want to just back up and, and talk history. So uh, where are your Door County roots from? What brought you here? Were you born here, or did you come in after the fact? I was born here, born and raised in Ellison Bay. My parents have the Shoreline Restaurant in Gills Rock. So I've been in the front and back of house behind the scenes for pretty much since I was tall enough to wash fish. <laughs> and how about you, Matt? Um, I'm not from Door County. I'm from Madison. That's where my parents live and where I grew up. Um, but I've been in the county for the past 10 years, I believe. Cool. And what brought you up here? Just a change of pace. Um, I was living and working in Madison for a while and um, was looking to just kind of move out of town. And a job opportunity brought me up here about 10 years ago. Great. Uh, so what what got you guys into food? Well, I think food is a part of all of our lives. And um, I guess you're diving more into like what we're doing now. So for me, um, going all the way back it kind of starts with dropping out of college and not knowing what to do and becoming a dishwasher, seeing the guys on the line and girls um, doing what they were doing and wanting, wanting more than what I had and just slowly started the progression all the way through the kitchen to where I am now. Where did you first start? I started in Northern Idaho um, at a restaurant called Bricks and yeah, just worked through the ranks there, worked as a dishwasher Finally got a chance to do pizzas and salads. And then as soon as that happened, moved back to Madison, realized I had to start the grind all over again and started dishwashing a harvest restaurant that's on the square. So did you did you ever do any schooling or did you just work your way uh, through? Yep. No culinary school. Just worked up through the ranks in the restaurant. And Jamie, how about you? How did you start getting into food? I was raised into food. I think my parents were both really interested in eating and our travels were always really based around where we're going for dinner or breakfast or um, that was the focus of lots of our uh, family time. And, and that was really part of um, what family bonding was. It's bringing together everyone over food. And so that was just part of the upbringing. And then slowly farming and landscaping came into a, a job opportunity. And so that brought more uh, consciousness into the whole mix and bringing, you know, what do I want to eat? I want to grow what I eat. There's pride that comes from that. And so that kind of started to draw into the whole mix of um, bringing what you grow and what you cook together and, and creating something out of that and kind of finding creativity from that even. 
So how did you two meet? I, I'm assuming it probably starts with you coming up to Door County, right, Matt? Yeah, um, I believe we met at Wickman House. Um, I came in a good friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Ryan Clawitter and his now wife. Uh, I was good friends with Ellie growing up. We both were raised up here and Ryan worked with Matt in Madison at La Toile. And so I think that was part of his tie to Wickman House originally and the Wickle, or not the Wickle, sorry, the um, Whistling Swan. Yeah, I think I remember this story. I think what happened was I had heard about Jamie and I knew she was out there and I wanted to impress her in the whole table. So we whipped up this fancy dish that had all this shellfish in it, brought it out, set it down. And Ryan was just like, what are you doing? Are you trying to kill me? You know, I'm allergic to shellfish. And I was like, oh man, I think I only had one thing on my mind when I was cooking this dish. Sorry about that. <laughs> so we were at dinner. We went to dinner, uh, Ellie, Ryan, and uh, another friend of ours, bringing that full circle. <laughs> um, so then from there, um, a couple of nights later, she came in at the end of the night and we were talking and we kind of hit it off from there and started hanging out. Going on a couple hikes, but then I left very soon after that. Where is it that you went? Um, I went to Colorado to Boulder for a winter. Um, after having about three seasons in Door County under my belt and going through three winters. And I mean, I got to say at this point now, uh, maybe seven years ago, the winters in Door County for young kids. Uh, I don't think it's quite the same. It's still dismal. There's still not a lot going on but there is more like-minded people now. So backtracking, I was ready to get out of here and I was ready to just leave the county. I wanted to keep working. I knew a lot of people went to Florida or Colorado. So I picked Colorado and I wanted to keep the ball rolling. But when I was out there, I landed a really good job right away. It's almost, almost lucky, maybe almost almost too lucky. It was, I, I kind of got in over my head and while I was out there, I realized how much I actually loved working at Wickman house and how well I was treated there. And, um, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that I wanted to come back. So I called and asked the chef, you know, kind of like, is it okay if I come back? And I was like, yeah, we'd love to have you back. So it kind of just came full circle and I got everything packed up and came back and kept going with Wickman House after I came back. What was it like working with Wickman House? How is the how is the kitchen there different from some of the other places that you've worked? Mm, so the Wickman House, first of all, I just want to say the Wickman House is a great thing for this county. Um, when they started now six years ago or seven years ago now, um, the first season and first two it it wasn't uh, it wasn't like this restaurant was just so popular right off the bat. Um, everybody had to grind and work hard and figure out what the community wanted, um, what we wanted to provide, and and slowly but surely it caught on. And it's it was honestly the perfect example for Mike Holmes and Sarah Holmes of hard work and not giving up and keep pushing through and good things happened. So as far as Wickman House. Compared to other restaurants, I think for us at that time, um, we had a really good solid kitchen crew right from the beginning. Um, they've always had great people in that kitchen front and back. But in the beginning, we were a brand new restaurant in a place that really didn't have a restaurant quite like that yet. And so, like I said, we were all trying to figure it out. And we had different chefs that had worked in different places for different people. And we all had some experience at least. So we all had some things to bring to the table and we all kind of brought our different techniques together to create what I really think Wickman house had is now, you know, I mean, it's always ever changing and, tra and transforming with whoever is there. And obviously I'm not there anymore, but um, around year two, year three, year four, um, it was cool to see Wickman House become everything that we were in the back all put together as a team and it, and it worked and people liked it and people wanted to come come back. And you could tell that, you know, we were obviously passionate about what we were doing and we were getting the good response and it gave us enough energy to keep going forward. Is that maybe a through line in, in what you've been doing, that passion for creating that has has inspired you throughout your, your journey? 
Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's really all about the passion. And then, you know, so part of the reason why we ended up doing Door County Underground is because, um, I want to say that we were realizing that maybe the passion was starting to get lost or we just wanted to make sure that we, we wanted to stay true to who we were and what we wanted to do. And we didn't want to lose the passion. And I think a lot of people can understand, uh, you know, working hard towards a goal, towards something that you're passionate about. Eventually you can maybe lose that passion if it becomes something that you're not liking anymore. And for us specifically, we were, we were becoming overworked. Um, Jamie was at the shoreline. She was running the kitchen there two years ago with her dad. Um, I've been at Wickman for, or I was at Wickman for five years. Um, and that place became very popular. It became, became a beast. And we, we wanted to just be able to cook food and provide the services that we wanted to provide. Um, in a more, I don't know how to say it, reasonable manner, just um, not not so crazy every single day, all the time. Essentially, anyone working in the service industry up here specifically, you can get buried in the seasonality. It's such an extreme difference from winter and summer where it's so quiet and now there's a lot more action in the winter. So you could essentially stay open as a restaurant, but more so the summers are jamming. It's no longer Friday, Saturday night are the crazy nights of the week. You could be Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Those are all just as busy. And so if you're some of the main crew in the kitchen, you're not leaving. You're probably going home to sleep and that's it. And so, you know, having a relationship, for instance, is rather difficult unless the other person completely understands that lifestyle. And so um, part of Door County Underground was seeking out you know, we want time to forage food. We want to be able to grow food. There, we were striking a balance between working hard and still getting the satisfaction out of that and kind of that Midwestern mentality of going in full and giving everything you've got, but having a balance of enjoying work again and enjoying the beautiful season and being in Door County, you want to be able to see it instead of just, you know, Work and sleep and yeah, grind through. Grind it. through, yeah. Yeah, I think what Jamie was just saying, it kind of just made me realize is we, we really wanted to keep the connection to what we were passionate about through our jobs and through food. But more importantly uh, for both of us is we started to realize that we were potentially losing the connection between us because our jobs and our work were consuming more than it should be in our lives. And we wanted to figure out how well, how can we keep cooking? How can we keep serving? How can we keep doing this and still be happy and still have what we want and what we need more importantly? And we're still figuring out that balance. We took a huge step. It was a, definitely a big leap. And um, we got way closer to finding that last year, but we still have plenty of stuff that we'll reevaluate for this year. Um, what was too much, what we want to keep going with and all that stuff. So for those who aren't familiar with uh, Door County Underground, can you give us a quick overview of what it is and how how you approach that? And in in your first season was last year. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. Last year was the first season. So Door County Underground, what we were really trying to do is, you know, without sounding too pretentious here, like I say, sometimes local food is has become such a huge thing as far as uh you know, fancy words that you say, or this is our niche. This is what we do now. We buy local foods. We wanted to take our own initiative with, we are going to take this seriously and we are going to go the extra mile to get everything local as much as possible. That doesn't mean that we can get every single thing, a hundred percent local. You know, there's some things that we want to get that we have to use, um, that we need to transform food like salt and pepper, uh, you know, olive it's oil. just, oh, oh, yeah, nice. olive oil. it's not going to be local. <laughs> but do you think that the, like the farm to table movement and the buying local, do you think that that adds value, not only in terms of like what people are looking for when they come to your restaurant? And do you also think that it adds to the, the, the flavor of the food too? I mean, is it, a, is it both parts of that for you guys? Definitely. Yes. I'd say, <laughs> I'd say, I'd say that, um, 
without a doubt, you can't deny something that was um, just because it's local doesn't mean it's better. What means it's better is that it didn't sit in a truck for three days. It didn't fly across the ocean. Um, it's super fresh. You could talk to the guy who or girl that grew it. How did you grow it? Was it grown organically? Um, when did you harvest it? All, all these things that you're just in control instead of completely out of control or out of touch or have no idea where this came from or how it was grown or who grew it or was it even a person or, you know, what's going on instead of just being able to go to a farm and and talk to somebody and get what you want and understand kind of what is going on. And this is why we wanted to work at Hidden Acres last year. Um, for me personally, becoming a chef, uh, it transformed my whole life and it opened up my eyes to just like, as far as working, working the way up through the restaurant, you know, you're a dishwasher and then you're a salad guy. And then maybe you actually get to flip a pan around and look cool in front of some flames. And then you become a chef. And then it's not even about food as much as you have to make sure your whole staff is in line and you have to be a people person and you got to order food and you got to do food costs. And all of a sudden, I was losing track of, you know, like, wait, where is the food? Come, you know, where, where is the food coming from? I haven't had one second to go to a farm this year. I haven't had the time to, to check out all these things that are important to me. And I just wanted to be able to put ourselves in a place where we had enough time. We had enough time for each other. We had enough time to know what we were getting, um, enough time to think about all the dishes that we were doing instead of just getting lost in the day to day, being swamped with just being busy. So this next season, then where can somebody go and experience uh, your food? So this season, um, the changes we've made are on our own front is to just kind of bring our dinners closer together in timing. So we're prepping all of our dinners kind of in unison instead of a little bit in the beginning of the week, a little in the end. So we will be um, more regularly found at Hidden Acres Farm where we did our farm dinners last year. We're doing a the first Saturday of the month, a farm dinner again, similar layout. Ryan Castilla's discourse will be joining us for wild beverages, <laughs> concoctions um, and pairings. And then uh, so first and third Saturdays, first is the farm dinner. Third Saturday is a tasting dinner. It will be eight courses. That's going to feature a local creator or chef. And the first Thursday and third Thursday also will be cooking classes at the farm also. Our last Friday of the month is uh, one pop-up at Roots where we were last year, uh, weekly. This year, one a month. And we just signed up with Woodwalk Gallery, actually. Yesterday, we just lined up a Woodwalk dinner series. So we'll be doing three dinners there. Uh, same uh, multi-course setup, except it'll be a little more interactive where you're walking around the different curated spaces at the gallery and farm to kind of enjoy the courses in different areas of the barns. Very cool. Yeah, there's a lot there that I, I want to dig into. So walk me through. I haven't done a farm dinner yet. It's been on my list ever since I found out about you guys last year. Um, but walk me through what the experience is like. What can you expect when you come to one of the dinners? So a farm dinner starts out back, usually as long as weather permits. But so far, every dinner has been started on the balcony. No rain so far. And then um, Ryan will join us first. He kind of starts a punch course out on the balcony or on the, the back deck is really what it is. Um, they all, all of his drinks pair off of the courses that are following it generally. And so he, he has wild versions of what um, he comes up with to, to serve you as a liquid form of our courses. But start out there with Ryan, kind of get a taste of the beginning of the night. Then you move into the open concept kitchen dining room within the, the farm and sit down at uh, community style tables, usually about three tables, probably next to someone you never have met before. Maybe you came with friends, so you have somebody at your side. But um, And then we began, and, and it's five courses laid out. Ryan kind of interjects uh, every so often with a beverage that bounces off of something we're eating. And it's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, homemade breads, really good jams, and 
butters and then into salads, soups, all sorts of things. Really is the whole menu is curated by seasonality. So everything that's in the garden that's coming out of the harvest really fresh is what's going to be on the menu that night. So that's how we design our menus for each dinner. They're all different. How much prep time goes into to setting up a dinner? It's starting from when you decide what it is you're going to be featuring. Um, many hours. Yeah, many hours. Um, as Jamie was saying, for the farm dinners especially, we really try and use as much as possible from Hidden Acres Farm. So, you know, as we're out there in the field weeding or doing whatever we are told, <laughs> we're also thinking, okay, what are we going to have in two weeks from now for the farm dinner? And then a week out, what are we going to have a week out? And so, I mean, as far as, you know, the hours that go into it, I mean, this is like kind of goes back to what we we're talking about is like, we wanted that time to be able to process this instead of, we'll figure it out day of or whatever it is. Like, no, we want to take this seriously and we want to actually have that mental capacity to take this in. So it really it's not that it consumes our whole day, but I mean, we're thinking about these weeks in advance and then, you know, we have another dinner that we're thinking about that one too. Um, but for the farm dinners, you know, we're doing menu planning two weeks out. We'll usually meet with Ryan a week out cause then we actually know what we'll have for him to use. And I mean, we really got to give Ryan Castellas some credit here. For a guy who just jumped on initially to help us out, he takes this so seriously and he brings the punch. Yeah, he <laughs> brings the punch literally and uh, he takes it to another <laughs> level. His specialty beyond being a skilled mixologist is he's theatrical. He's entertaining. He will carry the room. <laughs> he is, he's got a, a way that is um Kind of a trance he can put you in and you're you're going along with it it's a it's almost dinner theater and yeah. the one thing um to be said is our dinners max out at maybe 26 28 people and so that's something that's really special in regards to the gardens we can use a fair amount of what we're actually harvesting because it's not such a mass amount of um, people that need to be fed mm -hmm. so that's something that's makes it easier for us to be able to kind of harness the bounty of the garden and, and put that right into our menus because it doesn't have to feed so many people every night. What has it been like working with the the different local farms? You've talked a bit about uh, your work with Hidden Acres, but where else are you sourcing your ingredients from? We have farms all over the peninsula um, from Carlsville. We have Healthy Ridge Farms, Spring Creek. Honestly, the one draw, well, one drawback from what we started with Door County Underground this year that wasn't the my favorite thing in the world was that um, we ended up working at Hidden Acres and that's where we wanted to be. Um, and then coinciding with these smaller dinners, we almost have everything we need as far as produce from there. And that's great. And it's also not the greatest too, because um, like, for example, I don't call cold climate farms as much. I would love to. They're an amazing local farm uh, that's around Southern Door. And I would love to get, we would love to get more stuff from them. Also, a lot of other farms too, but we just don't have the capacity to spread it around as much. Um, so unfortunately, I wish that, you know, part of me wishes we were serving tons of people so we could buy tons more local produce. But um, as far as the farms that we do use, Hidden Acres is the majority. I've, I've been using Wasita Farms meats and eggs for years and years. We still use some of their products. We've also uh, been using a lot of Dorkarma Farms local meats. Um, they're, they're a little bit more new in the county, just on par with Wasita. They both are doing amazing things. We, get, we also go with Henriksen Fisheries, which is not a farm exactly, but um, a, a great local, local product. Yeah, they're providing something really special and very local and unique to our location. Um, Hatch Distillery actually creates, um, they have honey. We've been using a lot of their honey this season. So some of the smaller products that we can get and, you know, not necessarily buying in bulk the way you would for a, a restaurant, but... Um, we're able to kind of hone in on those little specialty products 
Um, Healthy Ridge in Carlsville is a great one for organic fruits. It's the only organic fruit farm in the county. Yeah, I, you know, we say this from time to time, and we might be wrong. And every time I say this, I, I think I hope I'm wrong. But uh, Healthy Ridge Farm in Carlsville might be the only place I know where to buy um, actual certified organic fruit in this county. And um, like I said, I hope I'm wrong. I hope somebody out there is thinking, oh, I know where to get organic fruit. But I mean, if you just take a step back and think about it, all the orchards you see driving around this county and all I can think about is one farm that does certified organic fruit. It blows my mind and it makes us want to do whatever we can to support uh, Dan Bernard down there. I mean, sometimes we drive down there to get some fruit for a dinner if he can't make it up, um, kind of whatever it takes. So beyond beyond just knowing where your food is coming from, how does it make you guys feel to know that you are really immersing yourself in the county and the the farmers up here and and the buy local stuff it has become such a prevalent part of your business model? How does that make you feel to know that you are you're investing in the county. It feels great. I mean, um, just like uh, like we were saying, we're proud of what we're doing. We wish we could buy more local stuff. We wish we could support more. Um, and maybe this season we'll uh, kind of take that a little further with we're doing cooking classes. We weren't doing that last year. We're doing a few more dinners than we did last year. So we will be able to kind of up our intake in that way, but we'll still be our feature is intimate dining experiences. That's really not going to change. You know, we've had some requests for larger type events and we'll do a few that will be appetizer based and smaller kind of features. But um, our, our go-to is kind of creating something that's special and intimate and you want to come because you're not lost in a sea of, of diners by any means. And I think Door County specializes that in a lot of ways, but um, these dinners are, almost one-offs in, in a sense um, that they are unique in their own, something out of the usual dining experience. Right. Well, and when you go, you're, you're getting a meal that you may never get again. And other diners might not get coming to other farm dinners. What, what they're getting, um, and specifically with, with Ryan's drinks, those are, that might be the only time those drinks are ever made, right? Yep. That's yes. true. He will let you know. <laughs> does does being in Door County afford you any special opportunities with with what you're doing? Do you think that you could do the same thing elsewhere, or is it something that's special to hear? I think the one very particular quality of Door County is it's it's almost migrational. We are such distinct seasons that being able to do local food, you might be more really able to do local forward type of dinners in any other place where they have year round produce coming out. But um, for us, the, the benefit of Door County in a way is you can take a season off if you want to. You can relax. You can have a season just for yourself to maybe experiment or come back into remembering why you're doing it in the first place or get across the world maybe and take a taste of what somebody else is doing. I think that's something very special to Door County and it's worth tapping into figuring out a balance in the rhythm of, of the migrational birds. So I know you worked in Madison. How would it, you compare that between Madison and Door County? What do you mean exactly? <laughs> or I guess your experience working in restaurant industry in Madison, is it very similar or is it different? Um, it is It is similar. The places that I was working in in Madison, um, like Harvest and then L'Etoile, they were definitely, uh, you know, those are like, two of the pioneers of local food and in, in the Madison area. I mean, L'Etoile could be held next to, I mean, close to Chez Panisse, not exactly, but um, when Odessa Piper had L'Etoile, no, nobody, nobody was doing anything like that. They took a chance. And Tammy Lax was the lady who made a lot of trips out, I believe, to a lot of these local farms for the first time to get people on board before they were selling to any restaurants. And, you know, so the background goes hand in hand with, I mean, pretty much the reason I'm where I'm at right now is because of working at Lay 12 restaurant, hands down. I've got experience in other places and um, I, I obviously take it all with me. But going back to the days when I worked for Tori Miller at Lay 12, um, working side by side with Ryan Clawwitter, who's now the chef at Trixie's, uh, there was just sort of like a... Um, 
a military attitude as far as we're going to get this done. It's going to be amazing. And we're going to do whatever we can to get everything from local purveyors and farmers. And that's how it was every single day. And it was just something that was instilled in me. And I'm sure that's why I ended up at Wickman House with the philosophy that they wanted to do. And that's why we're continuing to, you know, go, go the way we are today. And I mean, to go back to, you know, talking about how, you know, restaurants say they use local and some of them do and some of them don't and, and, and whatever. The reason that we chose to do smaller groups is because we both came up in restaurants. We, we know what it takes to serve a ton of people and it's just, it's not easy. And we wanted to stay true to using as much local as possible. And we knew there was a cap on that. We knew we couldn't do a hundred people. We knew that 30 was probably the limit every time we do an event. And yeah. I'm a big Tory Miller fan. I've been able to work with him a little bit in the past being in Madison, but I really love his stories about being able to go to the Madison farmer's market every Sunday morning and he takes his wagon around and he picks out his own food that he knows that he's going to use that week in the restaurant. So definitely can see how that can influence you being in the kitchen and being connected to farmers. So as far as like looking ahead, then do you predict that there's going to be more of that type of attitude and mentality going into Door County food industry or... Where's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we can already see it. It's already, it's already happening. Um, we have more and more great places to eat at every single year. And I think that's definitely the direction it's going. I think that for us, for me in particular, is that you realize that not everybody's a foodie. Not everybody is looking for what we're doing. Um, some people are just into what they're into and that... Uh, I mean, for me, I just got to remember that not everybody wants the most amazing meal or local or foraged or this and that, and that we're catering to a certain, you know, group of people kind of, but yeah, I think in general, it's going to catch on more and more as it is and that people are going to have to acclimate. And if, you know, the people that want local and healthy food become the majority, which I don't think it is yet, then the minority is going to have to either get on board or change in some way too. Do you think that Door County Underground could have been as successful 15 years ago, five years ago? Or do you think that it's part of this, this changing vibe that's hitting Door County in the last couple of years? I think it's, it's definitely within a wave of, of conscious change for humanity in general, but um, American culture and kind of how we're approaching eating probably a little bit of a response to a wave of, oh, we're eating too much. We're eating too big. We're eating more than we need. It's not, um, it's not really fulfilling the, the hunger in the way that we're kind of going over the top. It's kind of the American style. Let's go, go bigger. And so kind of coming back, yeah, we, we are fitting in with a, not necessarily a trend, but a wave that's moving back toward consciousness and healthy eating and knowing where those products are coming from. People are more interested than they have been in a long time. So maybe 15 years ago, we would have been the very beginning of what this movement is. And now we are within it and hopefully helping to pioneer it. I think we're already seeing that within one season of doing a pop-up restaurant style approach. We went from people saying, well, what's a pop-up to, oh yeah, there's another pop-up over here and there's a dinner pop-up you know, at heirloom tonight or at anywhere, there's all sorts of really, it's really bubbling and exciting. And, um, it's, it's coming full circle to the County. I think often, um, has been a slightly a step behind sometimes in regards to whatever is hip or what is, um, what you could get in Chicago, but you couldn't get here. Um, so whether that's us catching up or... Yeah, no, we're years behind. I mean, there's kind of like a saying, like food trends hit Chicago and New York. And then in a year or two or three, they trickle down to like Madison type cities. And then in a year or two or three from there, we'll finally get them. So, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think I think we'll always be, well, not always, but 
I think that at the moment, and we have been behind, and I think that actually we're probably playing a huge catch-up role more than ever within the last decade than we've, you know, we've seen in a long time, probably. So you, you two are, are young. Ryan's young. What has it been like being young entrepreneurs in Door County? And, and, and do you feel like you're part of this, this younger wave that's coming in? And, you know, some are taking over businesses that have been around for a long time. There's a lot of new businesses coming in. What, do you, what are your thoughts on the overall landscape of Door County? For me, not being a true local. Uh, when you move up to Door County, you'll probably hear, you know, there's kind of like, there's locals and then there's you guys. You're not local. It definitely makes me feel very happy when, you know, we work with somebody like Charlie Hendrickson and his son, Will, and you can see in their eyes that they love what we're doing too. And it's like, man, we're okay. We're doing something that, you know, the people who have been doing this in this county for a long time before pop-ups or local food was even a thing, you know, they've been doing this and it feels great to work with, with, uh, with the community. It also feels really good when, when we get compliments and people like what we're doing and they want to come back and it makes us realize like, okay, this hard work is paying off. I think we're going in the right direction and it makes us want to continue. And I don't think we're the first of our kind by any means. There's a large group of, of younger entrepreneurs that have settled in and, and think that's really important to Door County for its survival, really. You don't want everything to just pass into um, retirement, essentially. You want fresh, keep it alive, bring new people, bring new draw to the county. And there's been many places before we began that, you know, Wickman House is one of them. That's a younger ownership. Um, the Creamery in Sister Bay, Roots in Sister Bay, even the bowl has been taken over to a younger generation of its its own owner ownership family, and um, you're seeing that it's it's kind of vital to Door County's heartbeat. Otherwise, there's no pulse if we don't keep it going. Sure, mm-hmm. the pulse is I mean, <laughs> if if we're able to provide something that people really enjoy and are looking forward to, and it's an alternative to the normal dining situation, that's great. If we can entice other people to do stuff like this, provide good food, provide good service, and it's something new, even better. Um, the, like seriously, the, the more good places that we have, the better. And I think sometimes it gets lost in, in business, uh, especially up here, because it's so tight knit and it's so small, you know, like competition is, is a good thing. The more anything that's good is going to be better for everybody and all the businesses included. And for us, I mean, sometimes it's just like, man, why don't we live in a city? I want to go get Chinese food or I want to go get this or I want to go get that. And it's like, well, let's just keep doing what we're doing and maybe we'll actually be there someday. So if, if people want to find out more about Dark County Underground, what you two are are working on, where can they find you on social media and, and so on and so forth? We are at Door County Underground on Instagram and Facebook. It's also www.doorcountyunderground.com. It has all the up-to-date dinners we'll be doing this season. And that's probably the best source of direct information that you can get. And can you already sign up for those dinner dates? Yes. All our tickets are live on our website and um, it's all open. Last year was a little more... um, under the radar, true underground. And so now we're emerging a little bit more and you can buy tickets directly from the website and it's a little uh, clearer approach. Yeah. And if, I mean, it's a different sort of thing. So if you have any questions or, you know, feel free to send any of those questions our way and we'll make sure you, (laughs) you know what you're getting into. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what you two do next. Uh, this year sounds like it's shaping up to be even more interesting than the last. Uh, I'm hoping that I can finally come down and eat your guys' great food because I've seen lots of videos and I've heard lots of stuff. Sam Kersabit, uh interned for us last year, so I heard weekly from him what was going on and knew I wanted to get me and my wife down there. So this will be the year for me to go. Have you been able to go yet, Aaliyah? I have not. Well, yeah. we'll have to go together. I know. We'll, we'll make a big pulse outing of it. <laughs> Thank you both so much for coming in and chatting with us. This was great. And uh, we'll, we'll see you and, and everything that you're up to this year. Thank Thanks you. for having us. 
These stories and more will be available in this week's issue of the Peninsula Pulse, available throughout Door County. For more headlines, visit DoorCountyPulse.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the Door County Pulse podcast for your weekly Pulse picks, interviews, and exclusive content from the Peninsula Pulse. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.